morning. Great to see you. Let me just pray just before we try and get our heads around this amazing passage of Scripture. Father, open our eyes and our hearts to your word now. Give us a fresh revelation of your greatness, your splendor, your majesty, and of your love for us, and the length that you went to. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, the first day, the first Sunday in Advent, as David has already reminded us, that word means coming. And there's that sense of anticipation in the church across the world of that sense of anticipation, of watching and waiting. As our eyes are turned towards Bethlehem in the back of beyond, but also of coming again too. There's that sense of anticipation. And John, as he writes the Gospel inspired by the Spirit of God, he begins to tell the Nativity story from a completely different angle. Matthew begins with the genealogy and the family tree, and Luke goes right into it and gives us a more of a detailed of the, of the, of the journey to Bethlehem and of the shepherds and everything else that went on. But John, he goes back even further than that. And he says, hey guys, actually it didn't just happen, but let's just go a step further back into eternity and catch a glimpse, a mind-boggling glimpse of who God is. And John is saying to us here, wanting to remind us that our hope isn't based on an idea or a a philosophy or a strategy, but it's based on a person, Christ Jesus. And John describes the person and the work of the Word. The Greek word used there is logos. It was interesting as I put Logos into Google Images, looking for images um, in preparing for this. You know what I got, don't you? Because Logos in English, L-O-G-O-S, I got all these logos. I guess there's something in it. Logos, be that Levi, be that McDonald's, be that Coca-Cola, whoever they are, it's a symbol, you know who they are, you know what they're about, you know what standards are set, you know what you're getting. (laughs) And here John is saying, here, in the beginning was the words, the logos, which means words, message, 
and in the culture that he was living in at the time, he was speaking a word that everybody would have known out, just like we would know about Levi. So John was speaking when he was using the word logos here. Everybody knew what he was on. In one way or another, they had an interpretation. The Greeks understood it as it being about the supreme being who held the universe in place and gave it unity and meaning. So it meant something for them. But John's saying, this Logos you're seeing is Jesus. Look no more. And when the Jews opened, when the Jews heard this word Logos, when it was translated into the Greek, they used this word Logos for the name of God, for that immutable name that they couldn't say and so they replaced it with the word Logos instead of saying God so as not to offend and blaspheme just like today perhaps in Jewish, in Jewish life you will, hear, you will hear them say Hashem which means the name Baruch Hashem bless the name not bless God because we can't say that word but it's another way of saying God Equally, uh, Jewish philosophers, uh, Philo, a few hundred years before Jesus, used this word, and according to the Encyclopedia of Judaism, it describes the Jewish leaders, Philo's uh, philosophy, of describing it as the force of wisdom, a force or wisdom of God through which the world was created. Interestingly, the encyclopedia says, a different from God, yet not separate from him. How interesting. And John says, the word, the logos, is God and is seen in mortal flesh in the face of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And as we journey to Bethlehem over these next number of weeks, my prayer is that we don't just turn the same old cogs and wheels. We don't just do the same old, same old. I know the story well. But my prayer is that, for, certainly for us who have been on the journey for some time, is that we pray, Lord, give me a fresh revelation and an insight of who you are and your love for me. Because you know what? We can't fathom it all. We can't understand it all. And that's why we walk by faith. But give me a fresh understanding. A fresh glimpse. That just like with the shepherds and the, and the magi of old, we might come with a sense of awe and wonder and worship Him. So what's John trying to say to us here as he's, as he's been speaking across the centuries. He's saying, if the word Jesus was with God and was God, then he should have the attributes of God. I mean, it sounds a bit mind-boggling, doesn't it? But it's okay. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God so it's talking of a relationship there with God and the Word was God.
our infinite minds can't fully understand something of the triune God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit distinct from each other and yet the same and John further on towards the end of this of his gospel he writes near the end but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name so John's trying to help us to give evidence to support why we believe what we believe but equally there are some aspects we can't fully grasp you know, there's no, there's no perfect illustration. I was told this when I was at theological college and I had all sorts of lovely little illustrations to demonstrate the, the Trinity. But I was told by one of, the, one, of the, one of the lecturers when I told him my little uh, ditty of my de- demonstration of the, whole, of the, uh, of the um, Trinity of ice, water and steam that I, and you may have heard that before. It says, well that's her- heresy, Steve. That's heresy. (gasps) And I was reminded that there's not one illustration that can fully explain the majesty, the mystery of the triune gods. Just as much I can't understand or explain to you nuclear power. I haven't a clue, but... I'm reliably informed it works. And there's something about getting our heads around God that we can't dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but I'm reliably informed through the witnesses down the centuries are these to be trusted and believed. And he makes a world of a difference when he comes into our life. So, John is in a sense saying and saying to us and challenging us, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a good man? Is he just a prophet? Or is he God? Has he got the attributes of deity? Well, I want us to just very briefly reinforce the sense of this isn't just fantasy or nice words but there is some reality that we can pin down and demonstrate the attributes of deity to Jesus too that he was more than just a good man a nice man so for instance we would say of God that God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting he has always existed and here we're say, John is saying, in the beginning was the Word. And we immediately, when we hear those words in the beginning, immediately turn our hearts and minds to the, begin, the beginning of the Old Testament. In the beginning, God. But in the beginning... Turn it on, Steve. Hey. In the beginning relates not 
to the act of creation, but who or what existed when creation came into being. Namely, the words. Who was with God and was God. Jesus was not created. He was and is and is to come. When Jesus was debating with some of the Pharisees and he began to being, he was being accused of being demon possessed by them. They said, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. He responded by saying, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. In the beginning was the word. He is eternal. Do you remember the question that Moses asked of God? God, what is your name? I am. And the errors made and repeated by people over the centuries have been that Jesus was either a created being or was similar, was like God. And they miss the reality that Jesus was the same, was identical as God. Similar, even in our own simple English, similar isn't the same as same. It's like it. And it sounds truthful. And it's nearly there. And that's the problem with errors. There's half-truths. But it's a heresy. That Jesus isn't like God. Or being created. But he is God. And our Jehovah's Witness friends and our Mormons, friends, would hold on to that doctrine that Jesus was a created being and similar to God. Was like God. And we would call that heresy. Even though they may speak a similar language, they're not recognising the same Jesus as we are. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. A declaration that the very essence of God was present totally in Jesus' human body. And in Genesis, the climax is the creation of humankind in God's image. And in John's Gospel, the climax is the arrival of a human being, the Word became flesh. Jesus is eternal. He was before the beginning We can also demonstrate, oops, we can also demonstrate that Jesus was also part and parcel 
of being the creator. In John, in verse 3 here, we read, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Through him. In verse 10, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. When Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 3, he talks about them having killed the author of life. In Colossians chapter 1 and that fabulous verses there in in, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse uh, 16 and 17 there for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together the word part of that creative creating the world and the universe and all that is in it how many times do we hear our scientists keep discovering more and more and more of galaxies and stars and supernovas and black holes and and it seems that there's no end it's mind-boggling and we worship the God of all creation who has set his love upon us I can't take that in I can't fully understand why God should look upon me with such special love. But he does. And if he's God, if the word is God, then, oops, sorry, then he ought to be all-knowing too. The disciples concluded during a discussion with Jesus prior to the cross in John 16, they said, after Jesus having used all sorts of illustrations and imageries, they they said to him, now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you know what Jesus' response was? If you read that passage, you believe at last! You remember the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 and Jesus asks her to go and call her husband and she says, well, actually, I haven't got one. He says, yeah, you're right. I know that. You don't have a husband, but you've already had five before and now you're not even married. All-knowing. But what about when Jesus knew of the coming suffering and the ending in the cross? It was no surprise. No one took his life from him. He offered it up. And we read there in Matthew 16, from then on Jesus began 
to tell the disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. This is Jesus, the all-knowing. And if he's Jesus, then... He ought to be, has it come up? Oh, it has. Oh, I'm really sorry because you can't see that. It was great on the computer. It does say there, honestly, all powerful. If he's God, then he's all powerful. Jesus came and told his disciples that I've given, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We see him changing water into wine. We see him healing the sick, driving out demons, raising the dead, walking on water. What more do you want to demonstrate that he is the all-powerful one? He is ever-present. He is ever-present. Jesus teaching, teaches Jesus said, teach these new disciples to obey all the commandments I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If he's God, then only God is worshipped. Oh, I keep pressing the wrong one here. In Judaism, only God is to be worshipped. At the beginning of his life on earth, we, we read in, in, Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel there, where the Magi ask, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Trajectory towards the end of his life and post-resurrection, we see Jesus appear to Thomas, and Thomas's response was, My Lord and my God. The disciples grabbed his feet and worshipped him. If he's God, then he has the power to forgive. Only God forgives sin. But Jesus forgave sins that seemingly were committed against him as such. And yet, when we hear David's prayer, he realized that it was against God and God only that he had sinned. To the paralyzed man lowered through the roof, Jesus says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. To the woman who lived the sinful life and who had anointed Jesus' feet, and he turned to her and said, Your sins are forgiven. This can only be God speaking or a complete madman. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus come and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If he's God, then he also has to be unchanging, forever the same. And the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And so John is wanting to bolster, if you like, who we believe in. He doesn't want us to be wishy-washy about who we believe in. He wants us to dig deep. He wants us to do the research. He wants us to identify. He wants us to have some presentation before others. Well, was he really God? Well, actually, yes, he was, because there is evidence for these things. But equally, I don't understand it all. But I trust him, because there's more than enough evidence to convince me that he is indeed God himself. And here's another amazing miracle. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And I think in a few weeks' time we'll dwell perhaps a bit more on that incarnation. Jesus is not one Saviour among the world's many Saviours. Jesus is God in the flesh. Has he passed your test? Is there enough evidence to convince you there? Is he God or is he just a prophet, a good, a good guy? Or does he have delusions of grandeur? In the beginning was the Word. And then verse 5 to finish off with. Sorry, the Word became flesh. Finally, in verse 5, it says there that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it or it can't grasp it or another translation says it can't extinguish it. Jesus is the light of the world. Herod sought to slaughter the innocent children to snuff out the light. Pilate chose to have him tortured and crucified, dead and buried, but we know death could not hold him. Emperors and rulers have come and gone who have severely persecuted the followers of Christ, but the light was passed on from one generation to another and the church grew. And God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Philosophers' enlightenment have sought to hide or belittle the truth, the light. Yet we see the light shining all the brighter, the darker it gets. How interesting that when you read verse 5, of that chap of John chapter five, John, John chapter one. There, that verse five there is written in the present tense, some thirty to fifty years after Calvary itself. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome, or has not understood it. The light had come to Bethlehem, to Galilee, to Jerusalem, but it goes on shining across the centuries. We can see darkness all around us. 
Our news bulletins are full of it. Wars and rumours of wars, genocide, acts of terror, abuse, greed, drugs, human trafficking, persecution, lies, death. We can go on. Nearer to our homes, the darkness may seem to be in the death of a loved one. Maybe in the family breakdowns or your failing health or unemployment or rising debt or the effects of crime. There are those times in every person's life when despair can set in like a cloud. And it looks like nothing is going to work out. And the future promises no change. Hopes are dashed and dreams die. Do you know the only power, the only power that darkness has is to convince us that there is no light. But the truth is, the light brings life and hope for all. And the darkness can't extinguish it. Darkness tried its absolute best to destroy Jesus. But even the grave could not hold him. Now that gives all of us hope. For the light to come and shine in our darkness. And when the light shines, the light reveals what's hidden in darkness. Shining a light into darkness reveals what's going on under cover of darkness. No wonder people scurry away from Jesus. When the light shines, into the darkness of our own little worlds. When he pierces through all the darkness and reveals our sin and we see our self-centeredness and his light exposes it all, I don't know about you, but it makes me feel uncomfortable. His light exposes it all we become defenceless before him or we seek to pass on the blame to somebody else. It wasn't my fault. If you're feeling anything like that this morning, if you knowingly are saying one thing and doing the opposite, then instead of running from the light and avoiding the light, maybe it's time to confess and to get right with him. The psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Do you need to welcome the light of the world into your darkness, into the shadows of your life? 
or maybe to shed some light on the way forward. Do you need to be reassured and comforted by his presence? The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. This Advent story of God coming to earth isn't a Walt Disney fantasy. It's about a real God who out of love came to us that we might know Him. And John is writing to the followers of Jesus that there might be some sense of reassurance of what you believe in. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. One of the carols that we will sing at some stage will be joy to the world. Why? Because the Lord has come, and His coming again. So let's live well in this Advent season knowing that the Lord has come. Knowing that the Lord is eternal who will be with us is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Knowing that He'll never leave us nor forsake us, He hasn't abandoned us. There's always a choice to be made. And as I present some of that evidence this morning, there's a choice to be made. The world chooses not to recognise him. His own did not receive him. But who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Let's pray for a fresh revelation and an understanding of the mind-boggling mystery of God of who He is. But let's draw near to Him that as we journey to the stable we worship in awe and in wonder that He has loved us. And though I don't understand it all, He loves me. Though I don't know why he came from the glory of heaven to be in human form on planet earth, to walk where we walk. I don't understand it all. But I know that he did. And I welcome him in that he might bring that life and that light to my life and to your life. Shall we pray?